You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode, Andrew interviews me about my own political development, from the early days of my scrappy DIY YouTube videos about Marx up to the present. And then the conversation moves on to a discussion of and criticism of the work of David Harvey. Our conversation covered enough ground that we decided to release it as two episodes, so this will be part one of two. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Please also consider making a donation on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, you will be listening to Andrew interview me. But first, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is November 21st. Yesterday, Gordon Sondland testified before the House Impeachment Committee saying that indeed there was a quid pro quo between um, the Trump administration and Ukraine, that Trump ordered him to uh, make these demands of Ukraine, and that everyone knew about it. Mike Pence, Pompeo, everybody. You know, people said Sondland threw Trump under the bus and he threw Pompeo and Bolton under the bus. In terms of what he testified to, he not only threw them under the bus, but he took the bus and, you know, he went into reverse crushing some yeah. bones and yeah. then went forward crushing some more bones and yeah. in reverse crushing some more bones. I mean, from a factual standpoint, they're, they're just a, a pile of bones at this point, I thought. And this is significant because up to this point, the Republicans have just been saying this is all hearsay. But here we have it straight from the horse's mouth, silence saying, Trump told me to do this and so I did it. Yet still, the Republican strategy uh, in questioning witnesses has been pretty consistent that they just throw everything against the wall to see what will stick, um, all sorts of diversions and distractions, and to try to create all this fog of confusion around issues which are very clear in which the overwhelming evidence is on the Democrat side. Um, but then again, their audience isn't necessarily... Um, us or people that read the mainstream news, they're sort of trying to go over the heads of those traditional gatekeepers and aim straight for the Fox News audience or like the Facebook um, GIFs or sound bites that might be posted on alternative social media sites. And they just want to drum up this narrative that this is all an unfair attack on the president and give people um, you know, permission to ignore all the evidence. And the Republicans can do this because they have the Senate and they can basically give the Dems the middle finger and say whatever they want as long as their base sticks with them. So I guess the question is, did the Sondland testimony do anything to change this bulwark of uh, Trumpism in the Senate? I mean, to me, look, the key facts are clear. There was extortion, there was bribery and so forth. Uh, but we, I, I just think we don't know at this point where the American public is going to go. Uh, there was a, a poll, ABC, and, and somebody did a poll, uh, came out earlier this week that showed 51% of the people polled uh, were in favor of impeaching and removing Trump. Uh, that was before Sondland's testimony, another 
percent were in favor of impeaching, uh, but not removing him. Uh, another thirteen percent, if I remember, said, "Well, what he did was wrong, but he shouldn't be either impeached or removed." And then twenty-five percent said, uh, "Oh, he didn't do anything wrong. He trumped." So um, I, I think that twenty-five percent is un- unshakable. I'm not sure about uh, the the rest, uh, and I think that really the future of uh, liberal democracy in the United States comes down to you know that six percent and that the thirteen percent um, because if, if if they are not in favor of uh, removal of Trump, you won't get the Senate uh, to convict. Uh, I think if they move decisively against Trump, you will get either the Senate to vote to convict and remove, or you'll have uh, a Richard Nixon moment where the GOP, you know, walks into the White House and says, "Get out of here." Um, but I don't. I, I just don't know what what will, will will be the case. So we're really dealing with like 20 percent or so of, of of the U.S. population that might conceivably be be moved. So I don't know if you would know the answer to this, but who are these people and what um, are they still trying to decide and what would still move with them at this point? Are they people that actually don't know whether Trump is guilty or not, or do they just not care whether Trump is guilty or not? Right. I mean, going to the first question, which is really most important, who are these people? Because then once we know that, we can answer the other questions somewhat better. We don't know because uh, whoever did the poll um, only released the so-called top line numbers, not the cross tabulations that tell you, you know, what geographic area are they Republican leaning, Democratic leaning, you know, race and and so forth. Uh, So we don't we we don't really know. I mean, I I think we know what to expect. I mean, the problem the problem is that the people who take wishy-washy positions, especially now in the United States, middle of the road, wishy-washy, whatever positions, they tend to be the least engaged and the least involved and the least knowledgeable and the least interested in political matters. So I, I can easily believe that this is this is largely a segment of the population that is not following the stuff carefully. And then there are people who say they are following carefully, but but they're really not, right? Right. So I, I don't think people really know. I think everybody who wants to know knows. And I think the real question is, are there people who don't want to know and just want plausible deniability? You know, I'm not talking about Republican Congress people. I'm talking to regular people. It's like, you know, can I have something to say to myself and to others that cast doubt on the fact that Trump is guilty of sin? Um, I, I think that's a big thing for a lot of people, especially people who voted for Trump. People don't want to admit that they uh, voted to uh, put a criminal in, in office, uh, somebody who was, you know, sacrificing uh, the interests of all of the American people, frankly, uh, to the interests of Vladimir Putin and so forth. You're saying they just need enough and they just need enough sort of face saving rationalization for themselves. So if they just get enough sound bites of Devin Nunes um, yeah, and Jim Jordan and, and, consp- and Radcliffe yeah. and, and all of those people. And I think that I think you know when you say that this was their strategy, uh, you know, divert, deflect, confuse. I, I I think that that that's the reason that this is the strategy. Not that anybody believes in its nonsense, although they might. I, I doubt it. It's that um, they can get away with telling others that they believe it, or you know, even maybe telling themselves that they believe it. Right, even though they would lose pretty easily in a court of law. The Republicans sort of have the numbers to their advantage with the Senate. So they kind of just have to sit on their hands and just throw out this garbage and uh, hope that nothing changes. 
Right. Unless the Democrats change their strategy. Um, I mean, one thing that, that uh, I think uh, Adam shifted very effectively yesterday uh, in light of the Sondland uh, testimony where Sondland says, was there a quid pro quo? Yes, there was a quid pro quo. Uh, everybody was involved in uh, extortion of, of, of the Ukrainian government. Uh, Pompeo and Pence and uh, Bolton, they were all involved in this. And the Republican defense was basically, um, well, Sondland, you never heard Donald Trump utter the words, you know, quid pro quo, except to say it's not a quid pro quo, or, you know, I order you to do something illegal. And and Trump has tried this consistently. You know, his whole strategy, read the transcript. I think somewhere in Trump's head is the idea that if he doesn't utter the magic words, he's got free. From a legal standpoint, if this were a legal proceeding, that, that just wouldn't wash. Um, and anybody in daily life doesn't operate that way either. One of the Democratic Congress people said yesterday, quite rightly, um, you know, somebody comes in with a, a raincoat and a hat and an umbrella and they're dripping wet. Um, you don't have to see outside that it's raining to, to know that it's raining. So in normal daily life and in a court of law, this would not work. But, you know, will it work from among the people who look, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. And this is a, a major trope of conspiracy theorists it, to deny evidence. You know, and this is a lot of what went on with the Mueller report. I mean, people just refused to, as they were saying yesterday, put two and two together. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people who probably just don't don't want to know. But uh, we will see. Uh, I think if it shifts, it'll it'll shift rapidly. You know, but um, I'm not all that hope. Uh, I'm not all that hopeful. What do you think? You know, I did see something recently. I can't remember where I read it, but. It was a piece by somebody, maybe he or she were like from a psychological background, and they were arguing that um, people that are really dug in on a, a belief or a worldview tend not to change their minds just by being like fact-checked at the Thanksgiving table, um, but they can sometimes change their minds about things if they're subjected to like an overwhelming barrage of... Um, counter arguments over a sustained period of time. Yeah, and then they, the end hill collapses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, th it, I think I read that this was the guy who was a former Mooney or something, right? Oh, maybe I don't. I don't remember that part. But, of the yeah, story, a lot but, of people. A lot of people have been saying that. But I mean, I, I think maybe people's minds can be changed in some way like that. But I'm not real hopeful. I mean, by the yeah. time of the Access Hollywood tape and Trump's ability to to, to survive that, I, the, the the jig was up. But ridicule, like Adam Schiff was was doing yesterday, that might be somewhat effective. Um, but I mean, the real problem that we face is the Democrats are just structurally incapable of fighting this thing politically the way it needs to be fought. They're an electoral machine. Um, and I mean, the, the craziest thing was yesterday, they have this debate last night with 10 of those jokers up there, and they're going on with business as usual, arguing among themselves about the most minute differences of policy at a moment where the house is on fire. The house is on fire. This is time for no business as usual. And the stupid, except for Rachel Maddow, 
the, the stupid news reporters are egging them on to like fighting with each other. Um, cut the crap. Say this is a national, international, world historic emergency, and we're we're, we're not going to play this game. And we're going to spend the next two hours, you know, um, dealing with the problem in front of us that needs to be tackled. Because hell, what makes you think there's going to be a fair election if this man survives impeachment? Okay, I want to interview my my co-host here, and in fact, uh, this is not uh, something that we worked out ahead of time. Uh, I don't know the answers to a lot of the questions, probably most of the questions I'm going to ask, so they're questions that I want to know the answers to. Um, and, and I want to begin with understanding more about Brendan's trajectory, you know, your history, Brendan, how you got to be, how you got to this point of being, you know, co-host of um, Radio Free Humanity. You, you didn't start off this way. Um, When I first knew you, you were producing educational videos on political economy uh, with your website, which still exists, Capitalism 101. How did you get into that? Uh, And I I take it you don't do much of that stuff anymore. What what happened? Why not? So I'll start start at the beginning and then I'll end up at the end. We'll see how that works. Beginning to end is often good, yes. So I started getting interested in, in the works of Mark. Marx and Marxists when I was in an undergraduate um, program studying politics in college. But, you know, most of my experience, although I took a lot of classes with, uh, I think, professors who would have called themselves Marxian, and that was, and it was my, that was my real interest academically, I read very little Karl Marx um, in those years. Um, we read a lot of contemporary Marxist political economy people, a lot of people like David Harvey, Mike Davis, uh, Frederick Jameson. Um, and when the works of Karl Marx came up, usually the uh, you know, my takeaway impression, I mean, I can't, it's been years now, I can't like um, quote my college professors, but my takeaway impression was that, you know, um, you know, all these modern authors are rooted in this Marxist tradition, but, um, you know, Karl Marx made these mistakes and things. And so, uh, and it's all, he's also very difficult to understand. And there's all this Hegelian background to Marx. And so you're going to get more bang from your buck by reading these uh, contemporary authors who've sort of dealt with the shortcomings of Marx's failure, mistakes and failures, um, and you're and, and it's going to have more contemporary relevance to things that have changed in the capitalist world, and the more they're going to be these works are more um, you know germane to um, what's the, the realities of neoliberal capitalism. Um, that's sort of my my short summary of my college experience. Um, so I kind of took that to heart. I hadn't really read a lot of Marx himself, um, but I I, I you know, kept up to date on David Harvey's new books and other people like that, um, and. And then in the mid 2000s, there was this phenomenon of YouTube, which just, had just emerged. Um, and there was, I mean, it's almost hard to remember now because YouTube has become sort of like people's second television. Um, but in the early couple years of YouTube, it was this, there were all these strange um, communities of people making like self-made home videos and sort of uh, debating each other and talking about politics and other things. And I, in terms of the things I'd seen, I thought, 
thought a lot of them were pretty low. Um, like the the level of discourse was very primitive. It was a lot of most, a lot of, you know, the stuff I was kind of finding myself watching were a lot of these anar anarchists making YouTube videos. And I thought they were kind of primitive uh, philosophically. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll try to make something slightly more polished. Although they were, my videos were really primitive and unpolished. But at least I like wrote out scripts beforehand and didn't just like mumble into a video camera. Um, and I would just like talk about Marx from uh, from the best I could explain some basic concepts of, in Marx. Um, and I didn't really expect that to turn into like a long project. I did it just sort of as an experiment, but I quickly got a decent amount of viewers and, and that sort of encouraged me to take the project more seriously. And so I started making, um, uh, trying to make more sophisticated looking videos, although I obviously, they were very scrappy and homemade looking. Um, <coughs> um, but I also realized I needed to get my theoretical chops a lot better because all of a sudden I was like debating people and getting into all this meat, um, meaty questions. And I didn't really have the background that I maybe thought I did when I started making the videos. So I started actually reading Marx. And that was really revelatory because I found um, like reading Capital and other works of Marx a lot more accessible than I thought they were going to be. Um, and I found them a lot more relevant and um, spoke to contemporary situations uh, much more um, immediately than I expected. And the reason the reason you didn't expect this is from your experience in college where you were yeah, told you know, was made mistakes and he was difficult yeah. to read and not very all Quran. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did yeah. anybody actually say those kinds of things or was that just the impression you got from it's hard to remember it was so long ago but I feel like um, I was I got the impression there was this thing called the transformation problem and it could not be solved and that basically there was this real existential problem with anyone trying to talk about value in Marx so so so, they, so my so my takeaway from that was well you know I could read all these three volumes of capital and it's gonna take me like months to like a year and then it's still I'm gonna have it's gonna be so hard to understand and then and then the upshot is that it's all gonna be wrong anyway so what's the point in like reading on that I should read some contemporary Marxist who has um, some other concept of value. Um, but it was also difficult because a lot of the conclusions that seemed to be important for talking about Marx, like the theory of exploitation and prices, I couldn't quite understand how you could come, you could theorize those things without a concept of value. Um, so, you know, I wasn't totally, I hadn't really, it didn't all quite fit together for me. Um, you know, I was aware that there were a lot of different theoretical camps between different points of view within the Marx world, politically and theoretically. It didn't occur to me, or I didn't, I didn't quite understand why um, all those debates were, were that important. Like, Vates, like say, like uh, around the value form or um, prices theory. I sort of thought, well, as long as you're advancing the general idea um, of a critique of capitalism and postulating some other society that's not capital, that that would be sufficient, that you didn't necessarily have to always all agree on these little details of these what can seem like very arcane theoretical debates. And so when I was making these videos and writing on my blog, I was often just trying to gloss over a lot of that those debates and some of that theoretical detail and just convey more general things. But you know, that approach can only be sustained for a short amount of time before if you before it runs into the fact that you have to actually take a stand on some of these issues because they're they're important. People debate them because they actually mean something. You can't sustain a theory of exploitation without a theory of value you can't it's hard to theorize crisis in some kind of marxist sense if you don't have a theory of value that's coherent so um it became difficult for me to sustain that sort of like um neutral stance on all these debates and i found i had to like dig in more theoretically and actually um figure things out okay let me 
just try to get a sense of the timeline here. Uh, you started the blog, uh, Capitalism 101, about when? I guess that was probably, I don't quite remember, but I guess in the mid-2000s. Okay. I started making these YouTube videos and the blog sort of followed as a right. as a supplement to the videos. Right. And you were talking about Marx and then you figured, gee, I should learn some Marx to talk about Marx yeah. more, more intelligibly uh, or at least, you know, with, with more background. Yeah. Uh, and at what point did you begin to realize that uh, sticking at the level of generalities and just trying to convey uh, some general Marxy points was, was not going to cut it for you? I think that was sort of a slow evolution because I um, I maintained some level of generality, I think, up through the whole project, um, um, maybe not even by design. I think some of it was just my understanding, but was not as nuanced as it could have been. Um, so, I mean, I've slowly been removing the content from my old channel. I mean, I had a decent amount of views for, I don't know, whatever. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of aware that people were, more and more people were linking to my stuff as like, oh, check out this. If you want to understand this concept and so i was feeling like more and more responsibility that maybe i hadn't realized i needed to take um so i was starting to you know try to do a better job with theoretically with the work um but then i uh you know since my life just became busy in the past i don't know seven or eight years i became a, a real grown-up with kids and, and a job and houses and everything and so uh, i just had, haven't had time to deal with updating the content and making it better and i felt like i need to take more and more things down because i don't think they're probably very sophisticated or theoretically clear, and I don't want to take responsibility for that stuff being up there. Okay, so um, so in, you haven't been putting much stuff up, but you you, you know your 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 website, Capitalism One Hundred One, is that what you call your blog? Yeah, it's Capitalism One Hundred One dot WordPress dot com. It's just right. one of those free WordPress blogs, right? Um, so. I mean that's still active. You still you still post on that. Yeah, occasionally. I'd like to do it more. I mean, I have all this. I mean, my life has just been. It's hard to keep track of all the projects when when one has too many projects in their life. But right. I mean, I have plenty of things that I've written. I haven't even had the time to edit them and post them. Right. Um, I, I know. I know the feeling. Uh, it's like I've all this backlog well. of yeah. uh, backlog of like files and things that are like almost ready to be posted, and then I like just haven't had the chance to like proof them and do the footnotes and put them up and everything. I, I hear you. I, I know that feeling very, very well. Um, I have so many things like that. Um, um, so when was the last last time you produced a, a, a video, like one of the educational videos? Man, Not it's probably been like 10 years, maybe. Ten, 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So basically, there was a period from the mid to the late uh, OOs. Yeah, it was like where maybe you five were producing or six this years. stuff very uh, consistently. Yeah. All, all kind of all the time. Yeah. And probably after about five years or so, you began to say, I have a responsibility to get things right here because people are paying attention to this. So increasingly, you began to take things down. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of funny because I would, you know, sometimes I would, you know, you can follow the backlinks on your stats on a site and see how people are linking to you and you sort of see the discussions people are having about your site. And I would see all sorts of funny things. People would assume I was like a college professor somewhere, um, which I just thought was so funny because I have like no academic background and I've never taught, you know, I, I thought that was really hysterical. Um, but I would, I started to realize people were like taking this seriously and it was getting more, um, a wider audience than maybe I'd realized when I first started the project and and so um, I thought, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff could be could be done clearly and more better. If I And I still, in the back of my mind, would like to go back and remake a lot of the, the videos to some extent, just because, I mean, it's people that got in on the early days of YouTube and, like, managed to get an audience. Um, some of those people, like, it's, it's harder to do that now. And so I feel like there is a platform there. I could potentially um, redo a lot of that content and put things up there and, and have it and be a, do a more responsible job with my initial mission. Um, if I just had the time one day, because the because the audience, so the groundwork's already laid to have an audience there. The reason you've been taking stuff down is not any qualms about the nature of the project, but just about the actual specific content. Yeah, mostly. Yeah, mostly. I mean, there's so much other stuff out there now, too. You know, uh, David Harvey has his Capital series. Rick Wolf has a... I mean, a lot of other people have, like, popular blogs talking about, or video blogs talking about Marx, so um, I, I, I don't... I think it would be nice, theoretically, to offer an alternative to some of those points of view at some point, um, but this is not the time in my life where I have the time to do that. Right. Well, maybe uh, this podcast series is a way to yeah. some of that. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. it's not going to be a place yeah. where I hope. Well, if I have anything to say, it's not going to be a place where we get, you know, the world according to Kleiman or the world according to Cooney, which yeah. would be the counterpoint to what I think those people uh, tend to offer. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah. I think this is a place to address issues of theory as well as uh, political matters and so forth. So can you give an example of uh, one of the things? or one strain of things that you began to have questions about and want to take down? Oh, um, well, you know, the um, for a long time, I really tried to stay ag agnostic about um, the value form school. And um, I guess we would need some like political, some uh, background to talk about that. Um, but um, I mean, the short version would be that where Marx s seems to argue that, that value is something created by human labor during the production process, um, there is a school of thought, a con uh, what is a date from like the 60s or 70s? I guess it depends on who you ask. Uh, I, I would say it begins circa 1970 or so, but I'm not a scholar on the exact dates of that. Yeah, I guess it depends on whether you consider Isaac Rubin a value form scholar or just some kind of prefiguration of the value form school. But I mean, basically, the thumbnail sketch would be that the value form school is concerned about the way that uh, labor becomes abstract in the labor process, and they think that it becomes abstract in the process of exchanging with money. And so um, the, you know, the, the debate is around whether that then is arguing that uh, value is created in the exchange process instead of production. I was aware that this was like a really heated uh, and important debate, but I, <clears throat> I didn't 
think it was that important for me to take a stance on it at the time. I don't think I ever like said, oh, I'm a value form thinker, but I think that the value form stuff I had read influenced my reading of Marx. Um, and, you know, I'd read <clears throat> Isaac Rubens uh, as the Soviet Marxist, I Isaac Rubens, he was a Menshevist, Menshevik economist, his essays on Marxist theory of value. And I, at the time, thought they were brilliant. And I also read a lot of contemporary value form people like Christopher Arthur. Um, and, you know, sort of reading reading these things simultaneously while I was like reading, you know, Capital. And um, that really influenced the way I read those opening chapters in Marx. It took me a while to realize that that, that was coloring my reading of the opening chapters of Capital in a, um, what's the word? Um, Distorting. Yeah, yeah, just distorting my understanding of, of those first few chapters. Um, I mean, I, I read some things you had written, Andrew, about the value form stuff, and I, but it still took me a while to figure it out. And because um, I think I was still reading through the opening cap chapters with those sort of that sort of orientation in my mind. And so it was really hard to get out of that mindset. I'm, su I'm surprised that you did that at all. Um, in my experience, people don't do that. And I always, you know, recommend to people um, when. When they read Marx, uh, if, if they've read, you know, the secondary literature, the, the people either commenting on Marx or claiming to represent Marx, you know, just ignore that to the extent that you can uh, if you've already read it. And definitely do not use that stuff um, alongside Marx to try to understand Marx, uh, you know, because if you if you if you manage to crack through the words of Marx at all, right, you're going to be reading it through the, the eyes of the secondary literature. Uh, that, that was your experience. And, you know, so I've taught capital and people say, well, what secondary literature do you recommend? And I'm like, none, you know, this is hard, but you can do it. And the other stuff, uh, you will end up not reading Marx, you know, you'll hit a difficult passage and you'll, your eyes will go to some word and, you know, some image in your head will conjure up what those other people have said. And you'll substitute, you know, what they've said about the issue for Marx. And then you move to the next paragraph and it's, you know, much more efficient in some ways but y y you never get to understand what, what Marx is saying so I'm I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm somewhat surprised that you were able to uh, surmount that and, and in fact understand that that was happening so it was a slow process and I think so I had some a few conversations with you over the years that kind of helped me realize that was happening in my own readings and you know what really I think I had to do that really kind of was more was the most clarifying um, was that I just made like a list of terms um, Socially necessary labor time, abstract labor, um, value, um, homogenous, universal, you know, words like that. And I just read through the opening chapter of Capital, thinking of specifically like passage by passage, how is this word being used? And what, how does he, how does Marx use this word? You, know, you can do this now when you have like a digital version of a document, you can just, you know, find the words, um, you know, uh, and so, and that kind of helps you. Okay, so how does Marx actually use the word universal? Universal in the opening chapter of Capital versus abstract, you know, versus homogenous. Like, what, how the sentences, sentences actually constructed? I kind of, I kind of had to do that sort of dive into the words to sort of unprogram some of the value form things in my head because um, it was kind of insidious. I didn't think of myself as a value form thinker, but a lot of that way of thinking had crept into my brain just sort of unconsciously, and so I, w I was reading a lot of these words um, in a way that made that interpretation seem make sense to me right and now you think it it, it, it you know does i think not it doesn't Marx's, uh, uh, right theory. yeah yeah 
So that would be one example <clears throat> of sort of secondary literature that's that like got into my head that took a while for me to untangle. Right. Um, so were there other major influences on you at that time? Well, David Harvey was a big influence. Um, and I had, you know, at that time was a big David Harvey fan. I wouldn't describe myself as a David Harvey fan anymore. I find his work very incoherent and muddled, muddled now. But at the time, I thought it was brilliant <laughs> um, and clarifying. So it, it, it was that was an interesting evolution for me um, becoming um, you know, a thinker that I that I was so inspired by and I, after after the more I but the more I read Marx and read more of the sort of meaty stuff, the less the Harvey Harvey's work made any sense at all. It just became so um, so incoherent and and um, kind of sloppy, um, and I became pretty disillusioned with his thinking over the years. How did you first get interested uh, in in Harvey's work? Well, we you know in my when I was undergraduate, we read his book uh, The Condition of Postmodernity. I read it several times. In several different classes and it was probably um <clears throat> it was an exciting book for me at the time because it it was it's all about um uh it it is it was sort of the first regulation school uh book of marxist theory i'd read so it seemed like it was this um this political this theory of political economy that could explain the changes in capitalist um societies as they moved from fordism to neoliberalism and it could explain culture and art and film and production all in the same kind of theory and so it was very appealing. And I subsequently read a lot more of his books, you know, when I was out of school, um, uh, all the way up through around the time of the Great Recession was when I started to feel like his stuff wasn't making enough sense anymore. And that made me just sort of go back and reread his earlier books and realize that there was never really any there there to begin with, as they say. Right, right. Uh, but your initial reaction to it was that it was brilliant. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, uh, I thought and that, is yeah. that because it offered a theory of everything, so to speak? I think so. I mean, he has this concept of um, overaccumulation. You know, basically Harvey's thing is that he's very excited about the circuit of capital. The fact that capital flows through, has to flow through people and space and time in order to complete its circuit. And obviously there are lots of places all throughout that circuit where capital could get, um, could stop circulating. All sorts of blockages and problems um, um, and production and this, and distribution and consumption um, and resource extraction. Um, and so he can then say, look at all these places where capital could maybe not um, circulate freely. Um, this allows us to understand all of space and time because, um, you know, David Harvey's a geographer, so he wants to talk about space and time. So at the time when I was reading those, those things, they seemed brilliant because um, he could go on and on for like chapters talking about the construction of urban space or um, the changes to the capitalist labor process or you know, environmental issues. It would all be related to the circuit of capital and the problems of capital circulating smoothly. So it seemed like it was a theory of everything and you could sort of slot everything into this, these little categories of time and space and where they sit in the circuit of capital. It seemed like everything was being explained. Right, and you didn't seem to pick up on the difference between everything being explained and everything being put into a slot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was everything was being labeled. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was being labeled in its circuit. Um, and that, that, that for you at the time seemed sufficiently explanatory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Obviously, you know, my sense is you're very critical of that now. What 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 began to uh, cause you to be critical of, of that? Well, what began was um, a pretty um, relentless rereading of his first, David Harvey's first book, Limits to Capital, which I think came out in maybe 1980. Um, it was his first book. Maybe it was the late 70s. But anyway, it's his first book. And it's the only real book where he tries to do do something theoretical. That's everything else he's written since then has just been kind of um, building on what he did in his first book. And he basically, <clears throat> in lots of different ways, says, oh, this is what Marx says. This is what Marxist detractors say. This is what the contemporary Marxists say about this. Um, here's what I say, and my solution is a fix to all the other problems. And so here is the new and improved Marx, or whatever the problem is. Um, uh, he does that with <clears throat> a lot of different issues that w- in Marxist value theory. But the one that I kept finding myself rereading over and over again was his take on Marx's theory of crisis. You know, Marx talks about the ten- tendential fall in the rate of profit and how that leads to economic crisis and David Harvey um, following the trends of the academic trends of his time finds a lot of fault with Marx's theory of crisis with the theory of the tendential fall in the rate of profit and wants to replace that with his own theory which he calls um, the theory of overaccumulation of course that's a term that Marx uses but Harvey uses it in a different sense than Marx Um, and he sort of builds his own theory of crisis to build on that but it's basically a theory of crisis in circulation Um, it's not really a a theory of crisis in production like Marx has. Anyway, so um, I found myself rereading that chapter in Harvey over and over again because I couldn't, it didn't, never quite made sense to me why he was dismissing Marx's theory and why he needed to create this improved version of overaccumulation to answer the same problem. Of all the books on my shelf, my shelves, it's probably one of the most like, you know, highlighted and circled and underlined and pages crumpled and torn because it took, it was like years of rereading that pet that chapter before I just decided that it really actually is doesn't make any sense like he just it's kind of a failed attempt he doesn't really actually ever um, prove there's anything wrong with Marxist theory and he never really answers the question of why um, his theory of overaccumulation needs to exist in the first place by the time he gets to his next book, The Condition of Postmodernity, he's presenting his theory of overaccumulation as the Marxist theory of crisis. And then the rest of his books, um, that sort of theory of crisis is what underpins most of what he, he writes and thinks about. Um, so it was that sort of, you know, going back to the origins of his, his theory and trying to work through it that made me become disillusioned with his work. And that, that took a lot of effort. Uh, it took close reading, um, as I understand what you're saying, and multiple readings. Um, and paragraph by paragraph, like, okay, this argument claims this. Then the next paragraph builds on that. Wait, why does he make this move from this paragraph to that? And, okay, I'm turning the page. Now, why did that? What does this have to do with that argument? Trying to follow through the logic of it. And I eventually concluded that it just kind of falls apart. There really isn't. It's a little, there's kind of some, just some hand waves going on. It, it doesn't all fit together in like a A then B then C kind of argument. It's more kind of an impressionistic argument that he makes. And and then that, that made me kind of reread and rethink about a lot of his arguments. And I think a lot of them are much more impressionistic than they are logical. 
How widely shared do you think this view is? Uh, my, my, my sense is, you know, he's he's a big name and he's been a big name for a very long time. And what we tend to get are a lot of people saying, you know, I agree with Harvey. I don't agree with Harvey or, you know, he, he says something that's interesting. But uh, the kind of criticisms that you have uh, voiced here, that what he writes is incoherent, muddled, sloppy, doesn't make sense. Uh, you don't tend to hear that. That a lot. I'm wondering why that is. Is it that people haven't done that kind of close, careful reading, you know? Uh you might be able to speak to this better than me, um, but I mean, it seems like with some people's careers, they get to a certain place where they're respected and people assume that they've done already done the important theoretical work and then they can just sort of write books that are kind of fluffy and impressionistic and then people just say, oh, that's so great. And they just sort of ride on the their existing momentum. They don't have to really do a lot of theoretical work. So maybe part of it's that. But also, I think the impressionism is kind of seductive and you don't notice the lack of clarity in the writing. And they, the impression Impressionistic character is seductive because, again, it's related like, to the theory the, of everything. Yeah, it's the theory of everything. It's like, well, wow, he can like explain Occupy Wall Street and you know uh, indigenous protest in the rainforest in the Amazon and I don't know, you know, I don't know uh, all these different things and like the the speed of which toothpaste comes out of a toothpaste tube and uh, you know Uber and like it's like everything is all explained as part of the circuit of capital and so it seems like the, yeah everything makes sense. I'm kind of at a loss for words <laughs> because to, to me, it's like, there's no explanation. Even in the way you describe this, there's, there's no explanation. You know, I, I'm wondering how people come to regard labeling things as explaining them. Um, let me let me ask you this. Okay, so what you've just said is that you know this is not a set of failings that are particular to David Harvey. Um, there's a whole tradition of academic Marxism, uh, and a lot of people, and you know, they write a book, and uh, then they rest on their laurels, and they begin to short shrift the fact that there was a debate about these matters, a debate about whether Marx's own theory was this way, and they begin to declare that you know the, the first thing that they wrote way back when is the Marxist theory. Um, so um, I remember, I don't know what year it was exactly, but I remember uh, being on a panel with you where you uh, gave a presentation called That 70s Show, which was about David Harvey, but it was about other people as well. Uh, and, you know, the ways that they proceed, their behavior, uh, the way they do academic Marxism. Um, why'd you, first of all, why'd you call it That 70s Show? Well, I think there was a TV show at the time called That 70s Show, which I never seen. I still haven't seen, but it seemed like it would be a funny paper title because it seemed like so much of the baggage of the Marxist world, this the academic Marxist world, was rooted in these sort of theoretical styles and um, currents from like the 60s and 70s. Um, the sort of thinking of people um, who felt like it was their job to um, fix Marx and put out their own versions of Marx um, and that that's what you did as a Marxist academic you 
<clears throat> kind of put your own spin on how to fix marks um, and then you hang out a shingle on that so and, and then there were certain if, if I remember from that paper which is uh, we did a long time ago there's certain sort of um, there's certain like uh, what's the word um, there's certain behaviors that are like really common um, there's a lot of like uncharitable readings of marks like looking sort of just looking for something to um, pick in order to prove a point there's like a need to defend what you're doing as as be, you're being objective and non-dogmatic because you're like writing in this you know writing during the cold war and during this sort of era of like very dogmatic stodgy stalinist readings of marx and so um in order to look like you are open-minded and not like a stalinist you have to like show that you're reading marx objectively and academically and so you have to like pick disagreements with marx in order to prove that you're not um, a stalinist or something um and then maybe so or or pick disagreements with marx in order to show the need for your own stuff right right uh, yeah I mean, that product differentiation yeah. the hang right. down yeah. shingle here's my take here's me okay for it, it relies first of all on you know you, you can't just go to marx you got to go to something else and then now, now i'm going to tell you why that something else is me that seems to be the dominant trope uh i don't know how much it has to do with stalinism i mean i think it's still going on among people who were not even born you know uh, or, or they were you know little kids when when the berlin wall came down um i, I think I think that there is something, you know, very much rooted in certain traditions of acad of academic discourse that um that works this way not not all of them and not even all of them in economics i mean uh, you know you have mainstream neoclassical economics people by and large try to fit into um the modes you know the research programs whatever uh that are in existence but when you get to the margins you get people saying god i'm not going to get any attention unless i'm different you know so i got to be me and and that was that was one of the elements that that uh, I remember from your your your, your presentation that seventies show I I had called it in my book uh, reclaiming Marx's capital uh, every man his own Marxist this phenomenon you know uh, and you gave it another name I can't remember um, it had something to do with do it yourself Marxism and, and something like that yeah. <music> Okay, so I've you know been listening to you, and of course I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying because I've gone through the same thing, um, probably much longer and much more intensively because you know I work uh, as an academic and I wrote and I, had, I still do. Um, so I take all of this stuff very personally, but um, it, you know it mean it means a lot to me. But what kind of reaction have have you received or reactions have you received to your criticisms of David Harvey? And if you've received any. Um, what I'm interested in particular is, um, have you gotten responses to the behavioral critique, you know, the procedures that he or I haven't, I haven't really gotten much responses that I am, that I can remember now. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I have too much to say about that. Right. Why do you think that is? 
in the same way that I was um, very happy in a certain point in my political development with existing in a certain state of generality and not feeling like it was crucial for me to understand the all the debates around various aspects of value theory and crisis theory and the like, or to take sides between various um, thinkers. I suspect that other people are like that as well. They're you know maybe interested in to some degree in Marx and Marxist thinkers, but they don't necessarily see a reason to be um, very discerning in their opinions and their allegiances, and that maybe they aren't really interested in some of these debates between thinkers. I, 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 that's a guess. I, I, don't, I, I can't really say for sure. Right. I mean, there, there, there are two things I, I can think of, and I don't know the answer, you know, it might differ from one individual to the other. I mean, cer- certain people can want to uh, proceed mm-hmm. at a fairly general yeah. level because for their needs, all they need are, are certain generalities. Uh, and another could be eclecticism. You know, yeah. people yeah. want to yeah. not get that heavily involved and yeah. make the yeah. distinctions between this and that um, because what they intend to do in any case is pick and choose what, what they have happen to like um which is a certain it's a it's a kind of a different orientation but um Mm -hmm. you know at at a certain point what i have heard you say is you 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 said that this stuff doesn't hang together it's not coherent you know i guess you're referring to 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 david harvey yeah Um, and i i wonder you know um do other people not see that or do they see it and not care or does it not occur to them because the coherence of what they're reading is not a, a form foremost uh, criterion uh, by which to evaluate. Yeah, I suspect that the latter is the case, that they're not reading it for coherence. Right. Um, you have any thoughts about why that might be the case? I mean, because to, to me, it's it's like, it's it's almost as if I'm, I'm dealing with, you know, an alien life form I when I come across <laughs> I know, you are a very concrete thinker, so, uh, but I think, like, you know, let's say you're, um, I don't know, people that, like, read The New Yorker in the bathroom, right? I think, like, some of David Harvey's books is kind of that kind of reading. You're not maybe reading from cover to cover, trying to get a scope of the whole argument. You're sort of reading, you read a couple chapters on the train and you say oh that's cool he talked about this thing i heard about and now it kind of makes helps me label this aspect of capitalist society and it's made me think how it's all related to other aspects of capitalist society and then you go to work and you pick up the book like two weeks later and you read another chapter and then you sort of put it on your shelf and you forgot that you ever owned it uh, so you don't you're not like reading it for its like coherence it's more like reading the new yorker um in your spare time it's just kind of like some entertainment Right, right. Um, but you know, it, it's not right. It, there, 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 there are the people who who read it in the bathroom, and then there are the people who, who put it on reading lists and assign it. Uh, That's true. Yeah, there's. He's. I think he probably is read a lot in schools. Yeah. yeah. That I can't understand. I can't quite understand how a professor would um, want that kind of writing that's that's not very clearly argued all the time um, in a class. And uh, you know, um, but then of course, like I don't know, I've like read Chris Coutron's writings, and they're they're equally incoherent and illogical, and um, they sound you know like, and he's a college professor, so I, I guess that's like par for the course. It's more like about the originality of your ideas and sort of the the um, your self brand and like the the sort of euphoric aha passages that like sell the book and like the rigorous consistency of the writing that's definitely the style of someone like chris cutrone um it's just sort of written for like the zingers and not for the coherence right um not to like jump to different persons but just thinking of like professors that i have read recently who i'm appalled by their writings 
Right. Well, I mean, Chris Catron, I think uh, his actual academic field is art or art history or something like that. But, you know, he's a, he's an academic. He, like, teaches and he publishes books. And, like, you know, I read the book of essays that came out a couple years ago, um, Marxism in the Age of Trump or something, that he, he had a bunch of essays in. And I read a lot of his essays. And they're just, they're, I mean, they're horrible. Not even from the political standpoint, just from the pure, like, dis, the discipline of writing standpoint. They're just, the ideas are so incoherent. It's just such a problematic, the argument flows so problematically. Right. Um, I, I, fi- I find Catron almost impossible to understand. I mean, I read it and I was like, how is he, how did he get a job teaching people how to write or, you know, or grading other people's writing? It's just all about like these, it's just all about like uh, trying to like say things that might be provocative or get attention, but there's no substance or discipline to the writing at all. Right. I, I, I found, I have found his writing really difficult to understand and therefore almost impossible to critique because it's just not clear what he's saying. In fact, if anything, you know, giving people the impression or trying to provoke is not that's not an argument right and and so how do you respond to that you can kind of respond on the same level but no thanks um and to a lesser extent i've found the same problem with with david harvey um just it's like an eel it's like you're trying to grab an eel and it keeps slipping (laughs) away from you that well that definitely seemed to be you know you and harvey had this back and forth about the tendential fall in the rate of profit yeah five or six years ago, basically after a couple back and forth articles being published, um, which you were clearly, I think, advancing a much stronger argument that, that Marxist theory is internally consistent and stands on its own legs. Harvey just took this very vacuous and impressionistic backdoor escape hatch and just kind of ducked out of the argument with some very bluffy, I can't even remember, Do you, how, did, how did the whole thing The end? actual chronology is that he gave a, a presentation at a conference somewhere, I think, and uh, and there was a paper, you know, written form posted on his website. I responded to that in New Left Project, which is now a defunct website, but the, the stuff is on the MHI website. Uh, so, so eventually, Harvey. I mean, I, I happen to know he he didn't intend to respond, but then for whatever reason he did, uh, and he his response was relatively long, but it had to do with one single point, which was a supposed metaphor that I had employed uh, and that led him to say, well, that's Kleiman's metaphor. I like other metaphors uh, and my metaphors are more helpful for us at this moment. Uh, and what was wrong with my metaphor, my alleged metaphor, uh, was that it was um, scientistic and mechanistic and basically he was conjuring up his trope of you know, a theory of economic crisis rooted in uh, Marx's law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit is monocausal, it, it postulates a single cause, it uh, occludes a lot of things that are going uh, on out there, and that, that's what, you know, Feynman is really advocating. Uh, and, you know, so we got this determinism, scientism, mechanism, uh, and, you know, eh, to each his own metaphors, but my metaphor is, 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 is better. Uh, in, in fact, what he was claiming was a 
metaphor of mine regarding what he called the nature of capital or the nature of capitalism uh, was not that at all. Uh, I was trying to clarify Marx's explanatory procedure of first looking at one cause uh, and then bringing in other causes. Uh, and I explained that uh, in terms of uh, an apple falling from a tree, right? Um, the apple falls from the tree. The apple falls from the tree. Why? Well, one way of explaining it is to refer to the law, just like Marx has a law of the natural fall and the rate profit. One refers to the law of gravitation. Is that the only thing going on to make the apple fall from the tree? No. I mean, the, the, the wind blew, somebody shook the tree. There are other causes as well. But one can proceed step by step, bringing in first the law of gravitation and then bringing in other uh, elements for a more complete causal picture. And that's what I was uh, arguing that Marx was doing uh, and that others of us do, whereas Harvey was trying to make this into uh, what he alleged to be a monocausal theory. So he just said that I was employing a mechanistic and deterministic metaphor about the nature of capitalism. Like it's going to, you know, inevitably collapse. Um, and it's all because of this one thing that nobody really understands all that well, this, you know, alleged law that's the initial fall on the rate of profit. So so I, I answered that and I, I went into uh, pretty carefully the difference between talking about the nature of capital at a particular point versus talking about an explanatory procedure. Anyway. And because basically Harvey didn't have anything to gain from continuing the argument, continuing the debate. He only had something to lose if you were able to show that he was not very coherent in his analysis. So it was easier for him just to sort of dismiss your critique with this sort of vague thing about metaphors and not actually engage in the substance of the debate. Right. He didn't engage in the substance of the debate. Uh, I agree with you that he actually had nothing to gain from engaging with me at all. I mean, this is known to be one feature of David Harvey's behavior over the decades is how little uh, he responds, you know, in writing and print to, to criticism and how little he engages with what people say other than, you know, the people in his immediate circle, his former students or, or, or whatever. Um, so in that sense, it was a bit of a surprise. And I, I have no real understanding of why, uh, other than he was being asked by not myself, but by others to respond. He eventually responded in in some form. But but I think that that might have been sufficient for his needs because, you know, I was on social media a lot of time and the kind of take from people who seem to be, you know, fans of Harvey is, oh, Harvey shows this is all really about choice of metaphors. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say that and, and nobody, you know, waited to see my response to that who said that, you know, that was, I, I think that they were happy to, you know, put a label on this, take Harvey's side and put it on the shelf and, and, and move forward. Um, there, there was very little response to that. And, and in fact, um, you know, the reason I asked you about people being concerned uh, with the theoretical content of so, what somebody's saying uh, versus or in addition to, you know, an examination, assessment, critique of their behavior, um, I, I found for myself over the years that when I, I try to um, 
to, to, to raise my concerns and try to get debate around the behavioral issues, which are really issues of scholarly discourse, scientific procedure, getting at the truth, they tend to go not very far. And people seem to be much more concerned with, you know, like, what is reality actually like? And I, I mean, I, I think that you're not going to get to reality just by, you know, listening to what this one says and that one says, and then choosing somehow there, ne- there need to be uh, intersubjective public testing. There needs to be that testing. There need to be the procedures that allow that to happen. Um, but to try to get that idea discussed has been very difficult. We should note that if you're interested in reading more about that debate between Andrew Kleiman and David Harvey, you can go to MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, and right there on the sidebar, there is a link to a pamphlet that the organization put out with all of the relevant um, contributions to the debate. It's available for $5. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. And that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. In our next episode, we will continue and finish this interview between Andrew and myself. Um, Please stop by our website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, for more episodes. You can also find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all other places. Uh, If you like the podcast, please give us a rating, subscribe, write to us, leave some comments, etc. Thank you. Thank you.